This recorded episode that we have here is considered the fifth sign. They were aware, or Jesus in verse 15, was aware that those who were in attendance wanted to make him king. So therefore he withdrew to the mountain to pray while his disciples moved toward the sea to make their way to Capernaum. While pushing out from the shore and about halfway into their journey in the Sea of Galilee, a strong wind emerges and the sea begins to get stirred up. They see Jesus walking on the water toward them. And the text that we just read said they are frightened. They were, they were afraid until Jesus got to them and he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And they welcomed him into the boat. This account uh, is also recorded in Matthew chapter 14 and Mark chapter 6. And it may be helpful just to overlap um, all three of these vantage points, the vantage point of Mark and the vantage point of Matthew and the text that we have before us today from the Apostle John. So John notes that in uh, chapter 6, verse 15, something unique that the other Gospels didn't record is that the people wanted to make Jesus king, so he, he withdrew. All the other accounts also noted that he withdrew, but John had that detail uh, that he brought to our attention. Matthew and Mark add that the disciples thought that they were seeing a ghost. Matthew includes the account of Peter walking on the water toward Jesus, then beginning to sink when he started to notice the wind. And Mark notes in a very helpful way in chapter 6, verse 52, that the disciples had not gained any insight from the incident with the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Same event, but different Holy Spirit-inspired vantage point. And John's account is the most punctuated of them all. So the outline that we're going to consider this morning is just two points. Trials and fears is first, and second, fears and gladness. So trials and fears, fears and gladness. Trials and fears, verses 16 through 19. There seems to be agreement that this was a trial, and we can read quite clearly that this trial exposed fear in the disciples. But is fear all that was exposed in the disciples? I would answer that question with a resounding no. So what then did this trial reveal? What did it expose? Well, in one sense, it revealed their humanity. Palestine was known to have a rocky coastline. The sea that they were crossing, uh, the Sea of Galilee, was 600 feet below sea level and was often subject to the onslaught of dangerous storms. So the storm that they were encountering that evening was not something that was foreign, yet as we know and as it's been recorded, this storm is providentially guided. Even though in this boat there were several fishermen uh, by trade, John himself being a very experienced and seasoned one, they were still subject to the mercy of the storm. So in essence... A storm like that, on a sea like that, it doesn't matter how much of an expert you may be at that trade, that is going to evoke fear. It's a recognition of their humanity. 
But is that all? On a deeper and far more eternal level, this revealed the disciples' unbelief. They saw Jesus and it frightened them. The sight of Christ should be expressed with joy, right? His presence should evoke rest. His nearness should serve as security. But this was not the case. In fact, they were afraid. They feared the one who just moments earlier showed himself to be the supply and the supplier. It wasn't that long ago where they witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus in that passage said he knew what he intended to do. They saw that Jesus is the supply and the supplier, yet the sight of him, and they were afraid. How quickly they and we are oftentimes given to unbelief. So I want to take a few moments and I want to illustrate this in a way that uh, is going to be helpful, I hope, for everyone, uh, but maybe especially for uh, some of the children. So if I could get a, volunt- a young volunteer, maybe one of the kids who would be willing to come up here, and I don't have to wait at all. <clears throat> Haven, it says, I am your volunteer. So thank you, Haven. We didn't, we didn't plan this on the front end, and I was thinking about this example and illustration last week as Brian brought out the bread, and I thought, man, they're going to start thinking we're, we've become the props church. So uh, <clears throat> I'm going to set this out here, and what I have, kids, if you can see, what is this in my hand? And if anybody knows David Pallison, you already know where I'm going with this. So it's a water bottle. What are the contents? What's inside this water bottle? It's water. Okay, so I'm going to open this water bottle. Open it up. Trade. Haven. All right, hold it. You can kind of hold it over that a little bit. And just step back just a little bit and just give it a slight squeeze. All right, that's a good, a good slight squeeze right there. What happened when Haven applied just a little bit of pressure? Water came out of the water bottle. Okay, now Haven, um, you, can, you can smack it as hard as you want to. You can smack it as hard as you want to. There we go. All right. Thank you. <clears throat> so uh, you can go ahead and be seated. Thank you for that. <clears throat> so here's, here's what I want to do. I want you to think about this example. Um, and again, this is helpful for adults, and I think it'll be helpful for children uh, alike, is to think about the outside circumstances, the outside pressure. It didn't matter if she applied a little bit of pressure or if she applied a lot of pressure. What happened? What, what came out of the water bottle? Water. Why did water come out of the water bottle? That's the contents inside. And so what we're, what we're seeing here with the disciples, by having their unbelief revealed, by having their, uh, a seeing that their humanity is on display, they and we are getting an opportunity to see and know the contents that make us up. And oftentimes what will happen 
is something like that. Uh, we'll, we'll go through a hard circumstance in life, and our temptation is to say, well, that's not really me. I'm not really like that. I know that I acted out in that way. I know that I became angry in that way. I know I said these things. I know that I acted in this way, but that's not really me. And that's not accurate. What is in you, what you believe, what you think, what you want, what you desire, that is going to come out of you regardless of the circumstances that may be pressing in. So what is this realization, the, the, the fears, or excuse me, the trials and the fears, what does this, uh, what does humanity and unbelief get you? It gets you in a troubling spot, a potentially damning spot. If your human weakness in that, you do not turn to Christ in faith. Humanity should help us to clearly see our weakness. Unbelief should give us reason to repent and believe in Jesus. The disciples should have called out to him in faith. They should have called out to him in faith. They should have remembered that he had just fed 5,000 people. It wasn't that they didn't realize that they were in trouble. They did not appeal to Christ for help. Fear gave way to unbelief, and their unbelief caused them to become even more frightened and prevented them from seeing Jesus as he is and calling out to him in faith. Trials and fears. Second, fears and gladness. I want to read again verse 20 and 21. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So in our first point, we established that this trial by storm exposed their fears. Underneath that fear is their humanity and unbelief. In John's account, what did Jesus do? How was he mindful of their humanity? What did he do with their unbelief? He moved toward them. That's it. Let that precious reality sink deeply in your heart. He moved toward them. God incarnate, showing his divinity by walking on the water and showing his love and lordship by moving toward them. There are two precious realities that I want to draw our attention to, and they are his voice and his presence. His voice or what he says. He responds with, you remember the words? I am. It is I. This is a prominent phrase in the Gospel of John. Yet this instance is not recognized as one of the I am statements in John. And I think there's a reason for why this is the case. You read through the Gospel of John, you have several instances where uh, the phrase I am is followed by a subject or followed by a description of Christ. Later on, or next week, we'll look at John chapter 6 where he says he's the bread of life. 
John uh, 8, where he describes him, he says, I am the light of the world. John 10, I'm the good shepherd. John 10, I'm the door of the sheep. John 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, I am the true vine. So those are instances where I am is followed by a subject, a clear description of Jesus. Then there are occasions where the phrase is used where the subject is more implicit, such as John 8, 24. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And then there are occasions when the phrase is used when the subject is absolute, the John 8, 58 passage where the Jews sought to stone and murder him when Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So one commentator in reference to this says, if in the present passage there is any hint of the epiphany of a divine figure, it is not because the words ego me are used, but because in the gospel as a whole, Jesus is a divine figure. So maybe a big picture way to understand is that even if this usage is not tabbed as one of the I am's in the Gospel of John, it in no way takes away from the fact that the whole Bible, not just the Gospel of John, is about this Jesus. So Jesus is simply drawing upon a self-expression of identifying himself to his disciples. Let me draw a pastoral note on this self-identification. Jesus does not have to identify himself with modifiers and superlatives. He doesn't have to keep saying over and over again, remember, I'm the bread of life. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and life. His self-expression, his self-identity, his statement alone is enough, which is what we read here in this account. And we ought to take him at his word. So be careful that you don't sin against God by refusing to believe in Jesus. Take him at his word. Take him at his own self-description and self-disclosure. He is self-attesting, but also has the reliable testimonies of John the Baptist, God the Father, his very own works, and the scriptures. For these disciples in this moment, the voice and the presence of Jesus was enough to maybe temporarily, maybe eternally, we don't really know, dispel the doubt and quell the fear. Marvel at the kind mercy of Jesus in this moment. In this instant here, he could have rebuked them for their lack of faith. He could have chastised how quickly, or to add the metaphor of where they were, that they had drifted away in unbelief. But as, you know, as quickly as they found themselves tossed by the wind and surged, they were drifting in their unbelief. Yet in mercy, Jesus was drawing near to them. He was moving toward them. The second reality that I want to draw our attention to is his presence. In the Old Testament, God's presence marked his nearness. God had drawn near to his people through the sacrificial system. Nobody could just decide in and of themselves that they wanted to approach God. And now, 
Here he is moving toward frightened disciples who are afraid and yet do not believe. It's not by chance that this event is sandwiched in between feeding them with bread, then exposing their motives in verse 26 when uh, they realized that he had uh, made it across the sea and his boat was still over there on the other side. When, you know, the people who saw that and traveled across the sea to, to, to see him, in verse 26, he tells them, you seek me because you ate loaves and you were filled. Then he filled in what they already knew of the manna that came down from heaven to the Israelites in the wilderness by saying, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread. It was my father. As God, the father, sent manna from heaven for their sustenance, God sent Jesus as the bread of life. The language structure of this exchange between Jesus and disciples in the latter part of verse 20 and the first part of verse 21 is fascinating. Let me illustrate it in this way. You have Jesus present with them, telling them that he's present with them, and then giving them a command to not be afraid. He's with them in the storm, commanding them to not be afraid. In that moment, he's not offering any other solution up. He's not saying, hey, watch this. I'm about to calm the storm. Or wait. In just a few moments, we're going to be on the shore. Rather, it's his voice. It is I. It's his presence. Do not be afraid. His voice and his presence were enough. Verse 21, it, the disciples, it said, willingly received him into the boat. This word willingly has a, uh, a wide range of meaning. It can mean resolved or desire or wish or that they loved bringing him into the boat or they took delight in it or they had pleasure in doing so. So let me ask you, what are you doing with the gospel that is preached every week here? Is it resolved in your heart that there is no other Savior but Him? Have you received Him willingly and gladly received Him as Lord? Are you feasting on Him as the bread of life? Are you listening to His voice as revealed in His Word? Do you love him, not for benefits, but for, out of pure devotion to Christ? What do you do when you begin to sense in your own soul that you're starting to drift away from him? Maybe I can peer in a bit more closely and ask this. How's the gospel come to bear on your soul in light of the many trials we have all experienced and continue to experience in the past year? How is it with your soul? How's the gospel coming to bear on every trial that's before us? Rather than trying to address some of these, I'll just, I'll just, just share a little bit of just the work of the Lord in my heart. When the whole pandemic thing, not necessarily started, but when it came more of a reality for us uh, about, you know, maybe a little less than a year ago, 
that very first week when it just seemed like everything was getting canceled and postponed and shut down and uh, you couldn't find toilet paper anywhere and nobody really knew like what to do, what to, what to, what to make of that. And, uh, and what I began to just see in my own soul uh, is that I began to get sucked up. So this outside circumstance hitting my bottle, the water that was coming out was, I was afraid. I was afraid. And for a few days, rather than turning to the Lord in his word and in prayer and, and, and trusting in his kind sovereignty, uh, I turned inward. I just, I just turned inward. And, and uh, I uh, just started watching more television, news outlets, and uh, just trying to consume as much information as I could. But I'm thankful for Psalm 34, where God helped me with these fears. Verse four, I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues him. Verse nine, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no lack of anything. Verse 11, come now children, listen to me and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then verses 15 through 19, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry for help. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to eliminate the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The afflictions of the righteous are many, but the Lord rescues him from them all. So the kindness of the Lord to help me to see my fear and to meet with me and to see that he's worthy of trust. Is Jesus the delight of your soul? Is he whom your heart loves? I don't know if the disciples in the boat were genuine born-again followers of Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, Mark chapter 6 His account said their hearts were hardened. The text doesn't specify all that happened in the hearts of these disciples other than to say they were willing and glad to receive him. But what have you done with Jesus? Or maybe another way to ask is, what are you doing with Jesus? I don't ask this question to imply that he is to be uh, trifled with or toyed around with. But don't you see what the Apostle John is doing thus far? In John 1, he's given us a clear picture that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the light. He is the Word. He is the one who makes us children of God. He is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He is the living water. In John 3, he said we must be born again. In John 5, we see he is the one whom we are to Believe he is the true feast. And here we are on a boat in a storm. Jesus drawing near to his disciples and saying, it is I, do not be afraid. God in Christ moves toward those in unbelief so that 
they will believe in him. You remember the main theme of the entire Gospel of John, John 20, verses 30 through 31. These things have been written so that you may believe, and in believing, you may have life in his name. God moves towards those in unbelief so that they will believe. God's kindness leads to repentance. So what is he doing here? He's calming the raging hunger in John 6. He's calming the raging sea in John 6. He shows that he is Lord over the body, the spiritual realm, and nature. So that not only will you believe, but so that you will have life in his name. Sure, can you imagine the comfort that the disciples felt when their weary sea legs stood firmly and securely on solid ground? The moment the storm Cease. The moment they were able to put their feet on solid, of course, that is a measure of great comfort for them. But is comfort and security in this life only what this is about? To the Christian who finds themselves troubled or distraught in their soul, how much of your current condition involves a neglect of these two precious realities? Belief in him, feasting upon his word. Trials are going to expose our belief system, what we desire, the things that we really want. That's going to come up out of the water bottle when trials press in. But to those in our midst who may not yet be in Christ, every human being, including yourself, experiences and operates under God's common grace. Even those who have the most disregard and are the most repugnant towards God don't realize that they are actually dependent upon him for everything. And one day, you will stand before the judge of all the earth and have nothing to show but your darkened, sinful heart. What about you? Are you looking for signs? Are you fervent on seeking him while you are in trouble? Then abandon him once the trial is over? Are you captivated by anything more than Christ right now? The Lord disciplines those whom he loves and often trials expose our beliefs and desires in ways only known to God. None of us would have picked the things that have happened in the past year as a means to expose what we believe, what we think, what we want. But in God's kindness, that was what he's brought upon us. And I don't know that the church at large has handled it very well. Jesus condemned those around him for coming to him because of signs or because they were filled with food as he condemned those who worshipped him with their lips, yet their hearts were far from him. He condemned those who were experts at keeping the traditions of men or the religious order, or in the case of the Jews, they were experts at being knowledgeable of the law, but they they neglected the commands of God and rejected the Messiah who was in their presence, who was speaking to them. 
Matthew Henry said, if, if we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, though the night be dark and the wind high, yet we comfort ourselves, we shall be at the shore before long. What is it that the disciples see? Mark and Matthew tell us it's a ghost. They believe it's a ghost. The reason John doesn't mention this, Carson states, is that he's less interested in dissecting their fear than in portraying its alleviation. So why then does John feel a bit more punctuated? Why does it include more detail in the events? Well, that answer you know, cannot be fully known um, and may help us to know the details captured by John with assistance of the other vantage points of Mark and Matthew, along with all of Christian scripture, are enough to expose fear and unbelief and remind us of the security and rest that comes with the presence of Jesus. Their sight of Jesus, while great, was not enough. It had to be accompanied also by his voice, his appeal to his people, his self-proclamation, his testimony and witness of himself. Later we'll see in John chapter 10, where he says his sheep know his voice. They listen to him and they follow him. So the importance of his presence and the promises that he is good and will do good for his people are communicated to us in his voice heard through his word. For the disciples, all he told them was that it was him, that they should not be afraid. His word and his promises are certain even when the posture of our heart really prefers different circumstances. Had the disciples had the necessary kind of faith, they would have called out to him in faith. But I think if they could accurately describe their heart in that moment, it would have been, we just want to be on the other side. We just want this sea to cease. And oftentimes that's the posture of our heart as well. But Lord speaks to us in his word. In that moment, there was no promise or guarantee that the sea would calm and that everything would be okay. It's his nearness, the awareness that God is near in Christ. It was the psalmist who said, the nearness of God, that's my good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So when the darkness comes, draw near to him because he will draw near to you. Let his presence calm the raging fear and anxiety in your heart. Let his promises as revealed in his word speak truth into the circumstance and settle your heart in faith and bring you into conformity with him. Turn the volume of his word up so that what he says has the loudest say in your life. There's no doubt they were not in a quiet situation. Water smashing the boat, wind ripping through the sails and, and howling, hearts pounding at the clearest and loudest words were the words of Jesus. It's me. Don't be afraid. No other king cares that you know him like Jesus cares and demands that we know him. No other ruler or authority can bring assurance and security like the presence of Jesus. Think about it. The leaders of our country, they stay away from the battle. In the event of a threat, 
There are systems of protection in place where the enemy is not going to be able to get anywhere near them. Jesus is Lord over nature. Jesus is the source and supply of the hunger that God has put within us. Jesus is not concerned with the threat or the circumstances. He moves toward us so that we'll believe and rest in him, so that we'll find our security in him, so that we'll praise him, so that we'll look to him in our weakness, whether they are weaknesses that are external outside of us or weaknesses that are internal within Dear one, I want you to see the themes in this text. Darkness, stormy sea, weakness, fear, unbelief, and now see Christ. See Christ in the darkness, who in John 1, 4 through 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness. John 3, 18 through 21, the one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. And does not come to the light so that his deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practiced this truth comes to the light so that his deeds will be revealed as having been performed in God. See Christ in the darkness. Now see him as your only way of salvation. Waters and raging sea are a theme that's thread throughout the Bible. You may recall in Genesis, the flood as a judgment from God, the ark as a type of Christ in saving Noah and his household, the rainbow as God's promise to not judge the world in that way again, the exodus where the Israelites passed through the divided sea on dry land. This understanding helps us make sense when we come to passages like Isaiah 42, verse 3. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. In Psalm 107, 23 through 32, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired harbor. There's no other scenario where the command in this situation to not be afraid makes any sense. Good grief, you're on a sea that already has a terrible reputation. You get into the boat and suddenly... What you knew to be a possibility is now realized. And the only way that this command to not be afraid doesn't seem ludicrous is because of the person who is drawing near to them, who is with them, who is speaking to them. And now in light of our humanity, our weakness, our fear, our propensity to look within 
At times, our propensity to need him only when things are unraveling, I urge you to call out to him in faith. Christ is our light and our salvation. Believe in him. Again, how is it with your soul? If it's true that trials serve to expose our desires and fears and beliefs, how are you responding in this present time of trial? Do you see that what is being exposed in you and that God is doing this in order to make your faith secure in him? He's not trying to provide empty provision and empty promises. It's about your faith being secure in him, about you listening to the voice of his word, about you resting securely in his presence. That's what he's going after here. I mean, these disciples had seen what Jesus did. They were part of the food distribution. And yet, hearts were already hardened. We've had some of us, we've had some in our own midst that appear to be making great progress in the faith and then when a hard trial comes, suppress the knowledge of God and turn inward. This is the third soil, I believe, of what Jesus speaks of when he talks about it, the seed falling among thorns, that this is the one who hears the word and the anxiety of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So I just ask you, how goes it with your soul? Here's how the Bible, the voice of God as revealed through Christ would answer this question. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm near. I'm with you. I'm near to the brokenhearted. I save those who are crushed in spirit. I'm your rock, your refuge, your your salvation, your stronghold. I'm with you. Hebrews would say, don't drift. Hold fast to your confession of faith in Christ. Biblical examples, Job would say, though he may slay me, yet I will hope in him. Or the psalmist says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. It might be tempting for us to put the focus on the fear. I mean, that's what the text mentions here. It's natural to fear. It's human to fear. But it's exposing a lack of faith. But I do want to do something here that I, I think is important Because some of you here may be asking the question right now, is it wrong to have fear? And some of you might be tempted to dismiss the fear and just focus only on why they should have faith in God. And I don't think either one of those approaches is a helpful way to understand what's going on. The focus is on the voice and the presence of Christ. So to only validate the fear... Only just say, it's okay to be fearful. We understand why you're being fearful. Only do that misses bringing a person to the voice and presence of Christ. But then to only focus on the problem of faith misses the fact that we are indeed human. But to hone in on the voice and presence of Christ aims to help a person understand what's happening inside them, what's coming out of the bottle through the trial, and in turn helps them to apply Scripture in a meaningful and thoughtful way. 
as Christians, we should expect trials. James says, consider it pure pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work that you would be mature and complete, lacking nothing. We should expect this. Peter, who was on this boat, would later write, these trials have come so that your faith which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as Christians, we should expect trials. As Christians, we must lean on his word. We must revel in his presence. So after Jesus said it, it is I, do not be afraid, the next words are, they were immediately on the shore. What's happening here? Was this another miracle? Uh, were, they, were they so comforted that Jesus was in the boat that they didn't realize all the time uh, that had passed by and suddenly they were at the shoreline? Um, I don't know. Sproul described it in this account in this way. But as soon as Jesus gets in the boat, we're home free. That's what happens when Christ comes in the lives of his people. He doesn't take away all the difficulties and make our lives beds of ease. But he gets us through the darkness. He gets us through the violence. He carries us through the storm. Mark Heinrich wrote a song, Only Jesus. I think it's, it's been a while since we sang it here at Grace. But here are the lyrics. When the trial comes and all hope seems lost, I will find my strength in the mighty cross. Only there Only Jesus. Only there can I cast my burdens down. Only Him. Only Jesus. I'll close with a missionary quote from John G. Patton, missionary to the New Hebrides. And this is a quote as captured by Piper in his biographical sermon that he shared on Patton a number of years ago. And he said, one of the most powerful paragraphs in Patton's autobiography describes his experience of hiding in a tree at the mercy of an unreliable chief as hundreds of angry natives hunted him for his life. What he experienced there was the deepest source of Patton's joy and courage. In fact, I would dare say that to share his experience and call others to enjoy it was the reason that Patton even wrote on his life. These are Patton's words this night. Being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. 
I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy His consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend? that will not fail you then? So lastly, glad is the heart that listens to the word. Strong is the faith that's secure in his presence. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you. And we pray for your help. We pray that we would listen to you, that we would enjoy your presence, and that we would honor you in all things in our life. We ask us for your glory and our joy in Jesus. Amen.